Welcome back to The Last Thing I Saw. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm an editor and a critic. And for my latest conversation, I talked with someone who has long been a personal inspiration to me in writing and thinking about movies. She is Amy Taubin, and she has been a mainstay of art form and film comment, along with too many accomplishments to list. It's always a rich and varied journey when Amy shares her viewing notes, and this time was no different. Among the movies we discussed were John Frankenheimer's Grand Prix, Charles Burnett's police drama The Glass Shield, Gina Prince-Bythewood's Love and Basketball, the pioneering work of Monica Trout and Alfie Mikesh, Spike Lee's The Five Bloods, Werner Herzog's odd recent drama Family Romance, plus a couple of short films and a Kanye West music video. Let's go now to the conversation. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw, a podcast about movies. It is about, you guessed it, what I've been watching and what other folks have been watching. Uh, And for this episode, I'm very happy to get together again with Amy Taubin. Welcome, Amy. Hi, Nick. I'm very happy to be here because I've been accumulating a lot of movies to talk about. Yes, I know. This is like it's 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 finally uh, you know you, you get to sort of vent vent it all. Um, I mean, I find I just watch and watch and watch, and I just do not have the output uh, at the very least of just like turning around to someone at the office. I'm, I'm glad to hear that this serves some purpose. <laughs> and you know, the thing that's so odd about it is once you start watching things online, and once things start in quotes opening online. Mm-hmm. You stop distinguishing between new stuff and just stuff you haven't seen before from any time, you know, from the end of the 19th century to now. It's all the same in that way. I know that the publicists have been trying and the companies have been trying to make really like debuts mm-hmm. of films that would have been in theaters that now are just online. But it's very hard to make that distinction. I just don't. I mean, I'm not driven to look at the next new thing when there's all this other stuff. Yeah, it's true. It seems harder than ever to break through. Uh, I mean, I hope that means that things will will play for longer since it maybe doesn't cost you like you're not physically occupying a theater space, you know, a screen or something to take up a release. But yeah, I mean, it's all it's all mixed together. And I'd like to think that's a that's a good thing in a way that kind of encourages people to compare things maybe that they weren't weren't comparing and put things on the same level that weren't on the same level as well. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, I mean, and I think there's still a big discussion around what's going to happen. Will people go back to theaters? I think not for a while. And um, how should this be structured? I mean, Ira Deutschman had a big piece on IndieWire all about how the various distributors of indie and art films could structure this. And someone else had some idea that, oh, it was Paul Schrader, I think, who said maybe like can should all be on Netflix next year. Hmm. And that 
the films should would be available to the same number of people that could have fit in the theaters for one night on Netflix, which is an odd idea. <laughs> um, so I think that people are trying to not reinvent, but mimic the structure of what would have been in theaters, and they haven't figured out if that's possible or even desirable. Yeah. It's hard to uh, stand out, I think, as well. So yeah, I, I agreed. It's 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 a strange time to to release a film, but on the upside, I mean, for one thing, uh, you end up paying attention to different things. Yeah, I mean, you you know that for many years I was pretty dedicated to avant garde film, and I never, I mean, I watched narrative film, but it was like a niche that I occupied to talk about avant-garde film and print. And then, you know, your interests change and change again. And but one of the things I've discovered is that I'm much more interested watching on my home screen. And it may be that I'm more interested in short films and short forms, but there is so much interesting stuff. So I will start with the best film that I've seen. I presume it's going to be the best film I'll see all year because it's so strong. And people don't think of it as an avant-garde film, obviously. It's it's a music video, but it's a music video that Arthur Jaffer made for Kanye West's Wash Me in the Blood, which is the first cut released on his new album. Kanye's new album. And it is just an extraordinary found footage film. And you know, Kanye, a lot of people, obviously, uh, people who are black and people who are white, have a problem with the idea of working with Kanye because of Kanye's Trump weirdness. But this is, this is a great song. And Kanye let AJ do anything he wanted so what this is like is love is the message, the message is death, only much, much, much stronger and more aggressive, in part because of the music. I mean, this particular song, because that was Kanye as well. And I just think it's extraordinary, and you can find it on YouTube. And I've watched it maybe a hundred times. It's like a great exorcism, and it is a religious work. And I think it's very, very interesting that Kanye West would just say to Arthur Japa, you just do your thing and it's fine. So yeah. that's one of the great things I've seen. Yeah. Kanye still has the ability to do that, to just, he has a certain space, a certain length of audiovisual space that he can do that with and say, just go at it. So that's one. The other thing is that Ken Jacobs, if you happen to be on Ken Jacobs' mailing list, he's been sending at least one short piece and sometimes longer pieces every single day. You know, I I sometimes feel like Ken makes too much work, but this is like letters every single day. And his primary interest always has been 3D. So this is all variants on his 3D work that you watch, obviously, without glasses. 
And some of the pieces are amazing. There is one that's longer that you can watch on the Anthology Film Archive site that is called Film That Invites Pausing. And it's a flicker film, but something else is going on in it. So the advice is that you look at it, it's about 20 minutes long all the way through first, and then you look at it again and pause wherever you want to, where, whereupon it becomes a completely other film because you see the, film, the, the layers that the flicker would have blotted out. And I think that's one of the best films he's made in a long time. Hmm. And in relation to the found footage films, I also rewatched Santiago Alvarez's uh, 1965 Now. Did you ever see that? I did actually rewatched it recently. With Lena Horne's 1963 recording of Ava Nagila. It's, yeah. it's, which is just like mind blowing. I mean, this combination. <laughs> and the footage is largely from what was called the war at home during the civil rights movement. So it's footage like you see now. I mean, it's, that's why it's been around. It's cities burning, it's police riots, and it's really quite extraordinary to watch. And that made me start thinking about the 60s and started me watching a lot of 60s movies, movies that were made in the 60s and movies that were set in the 60s or influenced by the 60s. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, going back to the the 60s has been something I've been doing through Eyes on the Prize, um, Uh which I've I've found myself talking a lot about, which seems, you know, almost silly because it's such a a staple of just education. Um, After I looked at Spike Lee's The Five Bloods. Uh, I looked again at that Swedish documentary, that Swedish found footage documentary, which is... Um, A Black Power mixtape. Which is just, and I mean, of all the films about that period and about the Panthers and about the Black Power part of the civil rights movement, that is still the best and it was extraordinary how I do remember that there were European teams that would come to cover the Panthers and to cover demonstrations, and that they were much more intelligent and you know less frightened in their coverage than anyone who was covering this in America, and they had a certain kind of skill that people who had picked up a 16-millimeter camera for the first time didn't in the U.S. didn't have. I mean, they were news guys. And the footage is amazing, and how he put it together is amazing, and there are just great interviews. There's an interview with Angela Davis that's one of the best interviews I've ever seen. There's an interview with, he was then Stokely Carmichael, uh, that's just one of the best interviews I've ever seen. Uh, mm-hmm. So Black Power Mixtape is the place that I would go if I were going to start looking at 60s civil rights stuff. Yeah. No, I I should look at that again. I think I think at the time it, it struck me as an amazing trove of, of material, but it didn't seem to have as much of a shape. But yeah, that, that sort of outsider perspective 
or specifically European perspective. It's actually funny. Have you ever seen this movie CSA, The Confederate States of America? It's a mockumentary Kevin Wilmot did, who I think co-wrote Black Klansman. It's a mockumentary that's presented that it was made by, I forget, like some European TV station about the United States. And it's a dystopia where the United States Confederacy won. Um, so it's a documentary about what that country would be like. Uh, I wonder if that's a movie that people are going going to dig up. It's sort of sometimes problematic, but but very interesting. Uh, that also for, brings to mind something else. I, I, I watched Nothing But a Man. Oh, that's great. Michael Romero. Romer, um, and he's, I guess, was an emigre to the States, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So I, I somehow feel that there's a little bit of that going going on as well, that he's able to bring a different perspective. And it's it's a movie that's, you know, beautifully acted and, and just just a kind of a perfectly paced constructed story um but but the but the some of the acting style feels almost a bit french in in, in a way um like all the effects everything's very very measured so that i don't know that was another interesting window in, into the, the 60s but before we started um before we started recording you were you were talking about an, another movie from the 60s that i had never thought of in in the terms that you were talking the john frankenheimer film Grand Prix. Um, yeah, I mean, I've always loved Grand Prix. Um, and I woke up in the middle of the night and Grand Prix was on some, I don't <laughs> know where I saw it, maybe Turner Classics movies, I guess. Because that's how I watch movies mostly. I don't sleep for long at a time. And I wake up and I turn on Turner Classic movies because I'm too lazy to switch everything over and look at Netflix. Right. And I get worried about being sucked into Netflix and turning classic movies. You figure it's two hours. That's no big deal. So Grand Prix, uh, which is John Frankenheimer movie from the mid sixties. And it's an auto racing movie. I mean, you know, Grand Prix auto racing. And a lot of people think it's one of the great auto racing movies ever. And I, I guess it is. That never was why it interested me. I mean, it's an incredibly romantic movie um, in the sense that it has this great romance between Yves Montan and uh, Eva Marie Saint, just a doomed love. But it really is the most anti-American movie. I mean, basically, the Americans in this movie are all of them, and that includes the central character who's played by James Garner, who is a racing driver who did something awful and consequently, you know, was kicked off American teams and is rescued by a great Japanese car manufacturer who wants to have his own team. And, you know, James Garner is supposedly the hero of the film, but he doesn't give a fuck about anyone else. And he doesn't give a fuck about uh, anything except winning. And mm. at the end of the film, he's standing there on the track and it's the most empty ending because of course Yves Montaigne has been killed and everyone is heartbroken and James Garner has won and that's what he was after and that's all he cared about and it's like he's incapable of taking any of that in and I just thought why didn't anyone see how anti-American this film was 
Mm. Because it is. It's profoundly anti-American. So, I mean, I mean, anti-American in, in the sense that it's supposed to be all about a certain, I don't know, American courage and, and you know, stick-to-itiveness. But ultimately, it's a very hollow, amoral kind of kind of victory. Exactly. Exactly. And it happens in a situation where, you know, this is a dangerous sport and it probably shouldn't. I mean, the thing about it is that Yves Montagne gets very disillusioned. You know, this is basically a sport where people come out to see people die. Hmm. And then he dies. And all James Garner cares about is that he won. And I mean, what, how, does, how does he come across? Does he come across as, as heartless? Yeah, he really does. He comes across as an empty person. Mm. Yeah. He has messed up relationships with women, but mostly he's just one of these guys who wants to win. Mm. And then yeah. what has he won? I mean, in the end, you really, the way uh, Frankenheimer shoots the track and shoots the, em- it, it, it's a great empty shot at the end. You know, there's nothing there. It's interesting if that's what sixty four, sixty five. Then after that, he directs seconds. Yep. So this is the maybe the, uh, an unsung double feature <laughs> to go together there. Yeah, and everyone you know understands what seconds is, but I think that Grand Prix is much more powerful. Hmm. That's interesting. That's that makes me think a little bit about uh, Derby. Um, have you, have you seen that documentary? It's from like 71 or 72, um, Robert Kaler. And it's a guy who wants to be this guy in the, in the Midwest, I want to say, in, in Ohio. And he really wants to be a roller derby star. That's what he works at a factory, but what he really wants to do. And he like, he kind of looks like the glamorous part, you know, and he wears these shades and he's, he's kind of, he's cool. It's like, he wants to, he wants to be the, I don't know, a cool derby star, not just like a, a thug or something. But this is all just a vision that he's had of like what a winner should be. And like the last shot, it might have, maybe it's, maybe it kind of harkens back to one of those Frankenheimer shots. As I recall, like the last shot is in a empty or, or just, it just makes the stadium a place of competition, you know, victory and glory seem like a very empty um, place. It's all about him chasing this, this ideal, this vision of being um, a, a winner, really. Um, and, and he's not, <laughs> and, and, and he can't be. Um, but it's, it's, it's interesting to like revisit some of these films in the, in the 60s. It almost feels like looking at past stretches in history and, and then looking at them again as, as different, I don't want to say drafts for now, but just that we've, we've been through different layers of, of the current era previously, uh, civil rights demonstrations and just very open and ugly resurgences of, of, you know, or visibility of, of like the, the very dark side of, 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 of America uh, and, and bigoted side it's it's hard not to think of you know george floyd or and, and uh, all the other filmed filmed cases of of police killing and brutality and murder and and go back to you know rodney king so in a in a roundabout way i'm i'm guess i'm thinking about 
about those issues in 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 the in nineties films um, because um, you you also said that you had seen Charles Burnett's The Glass Shield yeah which is not a good film I mean it's probably it's the one film that no one ever mentions in relation mm. to Charles Burnett who's a great filmmaker uh, it's the film that he made for Miramax you know an attempt after uh, to sleep with anger which is a great film and to make something that was maybe would reach a wider audience. And it's about a young kind of very naive guy who black guy who wants to become a cop and does become a cop uh, and is paired with a guy who's a total white racist and doesn't know how to handle this. I mean, he never thinks at least for a long time, of quitting. And then it involves a killing and potentially that someone close to him will be killed. And it has elements, but I never like to say this, but the actor, it's the wrong actor for the part. And I'm sure that that actor wasn't famous, uh, maybe was forced on him or, and I know that Miramax recut the film so it's not a good film, but it is absolutely what we're looking at right now. So I think it's worth looking at again. Hmm. Yeah. Police dramas and police thriller, thrillers now, they all can look really strange when, when you look at them now. All the different waves of self-consciousness that you know people made such a big fuss about, whether they're like gritty police thrillers in the, in the 70s or you know ones that are very conscientious about like inner city problems and that whole framing seems a little troublesome I, I saw this one called top of the heap that's with a black cop and he's conflicted about his job he has actually a sympathetic white partner who is corrupt but is is actually very concerned about him and he he more or less kind of self-destructs in this kind of spectacular way it's not what you think the movie's going to be it just was a fascinating thing on amazon prime i saw that it's interesting that one could just spend months just looking back now at all these movies yeah (laughs) and we would read them totally differently yeah yeah we talked a little bit about another uh, 90s um, movie, uh, Set It Off. Oh, I love Set It Off. <laughs> yeah. But also watching it, if you watch it through the lens of this is just a kind of a twist on, on, the, on a bank heist thriller. There are these all these details of their lives and dramas on the side that don't really seem, you know, perfunctory. They don't seem like you can just, you know, dismiss them Um I kind of really appreciated what F. Gary Gray did with with, with that in, in the midst of a really engaging, you know, un, un, ensemble of group dynamics. I mean, it's a woman's action movie that has real characters. I mean, that's the thing about it. You really are engaged with those characters. They're not like sticks. Yeah. Oh, I know what I wanted to talk about. Gina Prince-Bythewood has a new movie called The Old Guard. And... Gina Prince-Bythewood made two of my favorite movies of all time, Beyond the Lights, which is the one that no one talks about, I don't know why, which is a movie about a singer, and before that, Love and Basketball. Mm -hmm. And I teach Love and Basketball every year, and since it's come out, and came out like 2000, 
and I've taught it every year. And my students, at first, my white students and my Asian students didn't get it at all because they don't know anything about basketball and they don't know anything about women's sports in America. It's a movie about women's sports. And then gradually, I began getting more Black women in my class. And what I discovered this year is that it is a cult movie. It has become a cult movie. And every young Black woman knows this movie inside out. And it is one of the great coming-of-age movies and one of the great movies about how competition is not necessarily an impediment for a woman to be involved and to be competitive with a guy in the same field. That's what the movie is really about. Uh, It's hard to work out, but it is possible. And I just think it's one of the most wonderful movies. And the story of its making is so interesting because... Basically, it went through all the Sundance labs, and then no studio wanted to finance it. And then Gina Prince-Bythewood got uh, Spike Lee as her executive producer, and so then it went ahead. But everyone who is behind this movie, there is a subplot that involves the central character, who is uh, a very ambitious uh, woman basketball player who has a very combative relationship with her mother and they just can't get on the same page. And finally, they have a scene just before the end climax that's just as important to the movie as the love relationship climactic scene. And everyone, including Spike, just wanted her to cut the scene and she just dug in her heels and didn't. And it's what makes it a great movie. Mm. So I can't wait to see this new movie, which stars uh, Shalise Theron, The Old Guard, about these five immortals who turn up at every crucial moment in history. But I think you won't, I haven't seen it. I think you only see them in the present. But they've been around, they can't die and, you know, are on the good side every time. So I'm very anxious to see this movie. I, I, I like to hope that's that's true, that there are some people um, nudging things in the right direction <laughs> from the thoughts <laughs> that have seen it all before. Um, that's 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 one thing I, I, I am still still getting used to is things kind of dropping in the ocean of, of, of Netflix and making sure you're you're uh, still staying aware of it. Um, uh, I think the Five Bloods was was still able to make 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 a bit of noise when it appeared. Um, well, yeah, I mean Spike knows how to do that, and it's it's an amazing movie. I don't know how to say this. The first time I watched it, I had to turn it off at least three times because I was so overwhelmed. I mean, I was just sitting at my stupid screen and crying, mm. and I'd have I was crying so hard. Because, you know, when you're in the theater, you always pretend you nothing is happening to you, so no one knows. Right. But no one was here, so I was just weeping. And I keep turning it off and turning it back on. And in part, uh, it's because of Delroy Lindo's performance, which is just an amazing performance um, of a guy who is just totally 
fucked up. I mean, he, he's just been destroyed by Vietnam and goes back and then has a moment of, what do you want to call it, redemption, uh, grace toward the end of the film. That's one of the most amazing scenes I've ever seen. And it's a long scene, and Spike lets him do this in a way that, you know, I mean, more and more Spike has gone beyond any kind of naturalism in his films. And this is, I think, probably his most expressionist movie. But Delroy Lindo just goes to another place. The thing is, and everyone has picked up on that, and lots of people have written about this and how amazing this performance is. And because lots of people haven't seen it, I'm not going to give away the end, even though the end is obvious from the very first moment you get into the see these characters. So this is a character who has just carried an enormous amount of guilt and self-hatred and the worst case of PTSD and can no longer tell his dreams from his reality. And he is totally alone in the jungle. And he's been, he has snake bite venom in his blood together with lymphoma from Agent Orange. I mean, he's a dead man walking. Mm. He has thought himself responsible for the death of the squadron leader, who has been really sanctified by these five guys as a perfect person. Um, And he comes to him in his dreams every night, uh, but they're bad dreams. And so he is really dying, and he's standing in this clearing. And it's this amazing shot. He's on one, He's on the left side of the frame, and the camera is medium on him. And suddenly he turns his head and sees something that we can't see because it's outside the frame. And the camera does this pan that's like an arc up into the sky and across the sunlight and then lands on what he's seeing on what he has seen that we didn't see, which, of course, is this big-as-life guy who's dead, Norman, come back. Uh, We've seen him in flashbacks, but now he's standing there, and they begin to talk like two people, living people. Mm. But it is that camera movement that changes everything. I mean, Delroy Lindo is a great actor, and he could have done this scene maybe and brought it to this level of transcendence without that, but it is the camera movement that does it. And I get so upset when people still don't see those things. I mean, I think I read everything that was written about this film, and everyone talks about the performance, and no one talks about that camera move. And you know that Spike and his cameraman, they must have talked about this shot forever. Right. And no, things are talked about in in different boxes you know as if if it's not as if it's not like a unified thing yeah just also you know him talking delivering a scene 
to two camera, it, it's interesting to think about it in terms of naturalism and not because it's it's more real in some aspect because it it feels like it's just unfiltered this person. Um, but at the same time, it, it is stylized because the, the whole world kind of disappears um, in, in, until we're, we're taken out of that that direct personal space. And of course, there's music. Yes. That's the other big thing. I mean, there is this huge score this Taryn Blanchard score uh, that at that point is just soaring. It's true. Yeah. That's so often the thing with the Taryn Blanchard scores, they're like anthems with a conscience or something in a way. <laughs> it's the horns on the top and the drums on the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, and this has made me think about, and I know you've seen this movie, but our lips should be sealed. The, yet to come Steven Soderbergh movie, Let Them All Talk. And I, it's kind of the same and had the same effect on me as the, that sequence in The Five Bloods. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I can't wait to, to talk about that, that one more. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. I want to make sure that we... Uh, oh, yeah. Um, this is kind of going in a different direction now. But uh, actually, an interesting one because you know one thing that I feel pretty intensely missing out on is is repertory programming, and that still is going on. Although I think it's in some ways um, harder for people to find or or be aware of as much. Anthology is definitely uh, doing interesting things, putting programs together. And there was one you mentioned that I just seen. I don't know if it was in a a member email or a newsletter or something, but a series about a filmmaker who I don't think has had a retrospective in, I don't know how long. I don't know if you want to talk a bit about, about her films. They're showing a, a retrospective, but a streaming retrospective of her movies through anthology. Right. Monica Trout is a really, really interesting filmmaker who the majority of her films she made uh, they were collaborative with Elfie Mikash. And um, the series starts with The Seduction of the Cruel Woman, uh, a film made in 1985. And it continues with films made up to, I think, the middle of the last decade. Most of them are collaborations, but not all of them. And they both, Monica Trout and Elfie Mikash, were central filmmakers in the German LTB, there was no Q yet, but mm. uh, there should have been, uh, movement. Uh, and they worked a lot with filmmakers like Werner Schroeder, uh, and actually Monica made a documentary about him. But they were categorized as basically lesbian films, that had a much, much, because it was 1980, the 1980s, a much more interesting and encompassing take on gender than that. I don't know what the series is called. Mm-hmm. I think it's just called by their two names. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the first film in the series, which I guess is the most famous, is called The Seduction of the Cruel Woman. What, what's, what's, what is, what's that one about? Um... A Cruel Woman. It's a kind of S&M film. Okay. You know, I have to say I haven't seen it in 35 years. Um, oh, yeah. That actually reminds me. That was something else we were we were going we to talk about, like revisiting movies from, from certain moments you were talking about. 
things that might have been formerly adventurous versus things that might not have been and, and how that affects when you see them at the time? Oh, well, these are like, you know, there's also on Criterion, Betty Gordon has a series of her films and Kino Lorber is going to bring out a new restoration of variety. These are all films from the mid-80s to the mid-90s that suddenly are very interesting to look at because they have women as protagonists who are investigating their sexuality and certainly are not, their sexuality is not mainstream in any way. And the German filmmakers, there were almost as many women doing this as there were Fassbinders and Werner Schroeders and who were also investigating gender and looking for a language that wasn't mainstream film language to do that. So Elfie Mikesh and Monica Trout, their films are, in quotes, independent art films, but the language of the films verges into avant-garde simply because they were not willing to use conventional film language when they were thinking about gender in different ways. There was a real moment that that was possible, and it was more possible probably in Germany and because of German television than anywhere else. Yeah. That makes me think of uh, another um, German filmmaker, Ulrike Ottinger. Yes. I mean, I've always wondered, I mean, what's your perspective on that? Why why she seems to persist on the periphery in some ways? Because her subjects were women. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the mystery is solved. <laughs> and not only women, women who had very little interest, if any, in men. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing for um, Monica and Elfie. Yeah. You know, there are no real, unless they're, you know, uh, dom to death, uh, male characters in those films. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seems overdue to have a an Ottinger retrospective, too, since those are such kind of... Well, there was the beginning of an Ottinger retrospective, right, at Metrograph. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's right. Oh, right. That was actually just when things fell apart I, if i remember now mm -hmm. um right that's true and she couldn't travel i remember now she she was going to be here and then she um, couldn't 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 come obviously yeah she had gotten a, an, a, an award at the a berlin film festival i think this year right yeah. but she is a much more um international figure mm -hmm. i mean she had a certain amount of international interest in a way that I think Elfie and uh, uh, Monica never did. And that's partly because, you know, she worked with a certain number of stars like Delphine Zerig. Right. And because her films are, some of them are just ravishingly beautiful. Like Joan of Arc in Mongolia is just a ravishing film. Yeah. Yeah, we showed... Um... I, I somehow shoehorned um, Freak Orlando into um, a series that was ostensibly about international sci-fi just because I wanted to see it on, on the big screen. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
before we wrap up, I know there was one other movie and sort of brings us up to date on this subject, I think, uh, uh, that you want to mention actually a short film uh, that you saw on Criterion Fit Model. Yes. Have you seen that? No, I haven't, but I did put it on the on the on the queue because I saw someone had, had recommended it. Yeah, I mean that's how we watch films now. I was on Twitter, someone who I have no idea who he is, but I vaguely recognize his name and he said something about this film and I thought I'll look at five minutes, and then I looked at the whole thing, which was only 30 minutes long. And it's playing on the Criterion Channel on a double bill with Agnes Varda's Cleon for 5 to 7, which is a very good, I mean, it's, it's the curtain raiser short, and it's a very good pairing. It's by, the director's name is Mina Josephs, and the star, who also is the co-writer, is Lucy Owens, who's a fabulous actor. And it's basically about a woman who works in the gig economy. Um, it seems like she's trying to be maybe an actor, but she makes her money being a fitting model. You know, the the model who never gets on the runway or gets photographed, but has the perfect body for some designer's clothes. And half of the movie is a session where she just puts on and takes off a series of uh, um, ensembles for a client um, in the showroom. And part of it is her on the streets and at home. And the point of the movie is this economy. No one pays anyone. So everyone is in debt all the time, even though this woman should be making a living. Um, they just neglect to pay her because they can't afford to pay her. And then she can't afford to pay her rent and blah, blah, blah. Although in the end, and I will love her for it. She does a certain extravagant act. Um, it's a great character. The movie is very nicely shot. Uh, it's a wonderful performance. It seemed incredibly real to me. Mm. I would love to see this woman make a feature. Yeah. Fit model. Everyone watch Fit Model. Yeah, I mean, I for my part, I've, I've I, I couldn't even begin to explain the strange, uh, strange itinerary. It's like one of those old family circus comics. With doesn't make any sense. Just <laughs> hopping. I, I I actually saw like Castaway two days ago. I, I can't. I still can't explain it to myself. Um, I watched Dune again. Um, Conformist because it's the fiftieth. Family romance is this Werner Herzog. So I'll have to. I'll talk about that some 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 other time. Is that interesting? Which one? Family romance. Yeah. I mean, you know, it kind of it it showed it it can uh, I guess out of competition last year, twenty nineteen. It's just a very um, kind of static treatment of this phenomenon of fake families or f people who pose as family members, sort of like a hired mourner, um, except you would get a hired dad. If you have like a, uh -huh. you'd have an egg, you know, uh, absent father, you can hire someone to be a dad for a wedding and, and for all the, you know, excitement leading up to that and everything, you know, it's about a, an actual company that, that does that 
it's the kind of thing where it's the idea of it for me was more interesting um, than 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 watching it unfold. I mean, it's kind of inherently fascinating this this idea. Kind of, it ends up dismantling. I mean, all sorts of ideas about family roles. I have to say, there's like an even stronger New Yorker piece about this phenomenon from a few years back um, by Elif uh, Elif Batuman, um, which is I would say. If you haven't read that one, definitely read that. Um, and, and, and the movie's sort of discombobulating, but also very uh, disorientingly like level. Where do you find it? That one's on Mubi. That one's a Mubi online exclusive Mubi release. That's the other thing. You can wind up spending a lot more money than you know you're spending. <laughs> or just renting stuff. Yeah, I know. It really, I've had days where I've like just made a rule for myself. I'm only going to do the like flat fee places I'm, I'm subscribed to. So I'm not adding anything. Oh, there's one more thing that maybe yeah. I should mention, mm-hmm. which is uh, I got, you probably did too, this email from Sundance. Oh, I'm so glad you brought about- that up. I wanted to ask about that. Yeah. Yeah, talking about um, how the festival was going to be uh, in, what, next January. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be spread out in 25 cities, and there will probably be in those 25 cities live in-theater components, although that didn't seem to be clear. Uh, and the whole thing is going to be online. Uh, and I mean, all the films are going to be online. And again, it will be that kind of availability where, you know, if there were three Sundance screenings in theaters with a certain amount of seats, those are the amount of seats that will be available to purchase. Mm. Because one of the things that no one can figure out is how you, if you put it online, have you used up the whole eventual audience for the film? So if Sundance puts a film up there and a million people look at it, obviously no one is going to pay to look at it anywhere else. So that's what they are all trying to work out now. But I thought it was so interesting that Sundance, which doesn't happen until January, just understood that no one is going to want to travel to Park City in January. Yeah. Well, yeah, they definitely feel that they can't bank on that. And instead of existing in just uncertainty for another two or three months, they seem to be kind of capitalizing on it as an opportunity to expand the reach. I think that's kind of clever, depending on how well they pull it off, to actually have it going on in, I don't know, 10, 15 cities at the same time. I mean, it has a way of making it, you know, potentially break through uh, to to the public in in, in a new way without necessarily losing its cachet in a way. I mean, I think it's a great idea. Um, Of course, the thing that one went to Sundance for was to see people that you wouldn't have seen Mm. Um, for a year else, you know, anywhere else. I mean, it's you're seeing people from all over the world that you know, and some of that is productive and some of that is just friendship. And obviously that won't happen. Yeah, that's one of the biggest losses. It's, it's, it's true that that kind of just mingling, I guess someone at some point is going to invent the the zoom bar or something just this open space maybe they'll have that where people just 
will click in. It's not at all the same. There has to be some effort to create that kind of space where, where people can can meet, even, even if it's just online, um, because that is such a vital part of it. Maybe they'll have a simulated shuttle bus that you can just board online. <laughs> How do you think that's going to affect movies being bought? I mean, just since that is such such a mainstay of, of the Sundance um, of Sundance. Well, you know, the distributors claim that it it's they need to see the audience reaction to a film mm. to know if the film plays or not. But I think that's been happening less and less. I mean, I think an awful lot of Sundance films get pre-bought or they get bought long after. And I don't know how much, you know, that everyone screamed and cheered. As a matter of fact, lots of distributors were really fooled by that mm. and ended up badly because of that. They thought that, you know, the person's friends screaming and cheering in the audience uh, meant something. So I, I don't know that it will affect, obviously, what's going to affect right now is will anyone ever go back to theaters again that's what's going to affect things and how long will it be before people start making things well i mean in in that respect just the making of things i feel like there's always going to be some country somewhere that's doing okay that you can go fly to and and make some sort of movie or i I saw somewhere that hungry was like tossing aside all requirements on 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 american film crews (laughs) they just want people to just come and make something you know Right, but Canada is doing the opposite. Mm. You can't go. You cannot now go to Vancouver and make a film. Right, they'll just have to make them in in uh, New York after all. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how how the how Sundance plays out. All right, well, we'll another world, another world. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a, a, another world. Well. Good talking. Thank you. Really nice talking to you, Nick. I wish I could see you yes, in person. Likewise. Well, uh, we'll wrap it up there. Um, and okay. until next time. Okay. <laughs> Bye.